for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. My name's Marshall. I was so tempted to open that up by saying, welcome to the happy rant. Oh, really? Just because that's what today's going to be. Oh, okay. <laughs> the happy rant. But Shout then I thought the people, people would be like, am I wrong podcast? Right. Yeah. Happy rant. Pretty solid podcast. It's a good podcast. It's entertaining. Yep. I enjoy it. Yep. They're happy. And they, and rant. they rant. They do rant. They do. They do. Yep. All right. How you doing today? Doing okay. Yep. Yeah. Busy day. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff going on. Lots yeah. of deadlines. That that it's that time of year again. I feel it too. But hey, let's podcast. We're here. All right. So we are coming up in as far as the historical timeline, the seventies. Seventies. Nineteen seventies. Yeah. Seventies. Yeah. And coming 80s. into the eighties. So we're talking my time. Wow. I'm a 70s baby. Oh, are you like 79? Yeah. I was there for, I was born (laughs) May 3rd, 1979. Okay. For anyone out there trying to steal my ID. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I remember all this. Uh, Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. All right. So I've got some some contemporaneous events from the 70s and 80s here. Is one of them me being born? No, but you can interject. I just did that. I just did. You did. Uh... In April 1970s, or in April 1970, rather, the Beatles officially break up. Ooh. <sighs> and they were never as good on their own as they were together. No. Nin- Varying degrees of success amongst them. Sure. Yes. That is true. Uh, 1971, floppy disks hit the market. Like real floppy disks. Like, like not that little hard... Oh. Ones that they called floppies. <laughs> We're talking the five the, and a half inch. The original floppies, yeah. You flick the wrist and it flopped. <laughs> um, 1973, uh, Nixon signs the Paris Peace Accords, essentially ending direct American involvement in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1974, the UPC, which we typically refer to as the barcode, uh, first comes into usage so there was a department store that kind of started as the the you know pilot program mm-hmm. the first item scanned successfully was wrigley's juicy fruit gum that's an awesome fact i love that someone wrote that down for future generations i know <laughs> so that is yeah that is uh that has been preserved for for history for us and now there's barcodes on everything which is crazy um 1979 the soviet union invaded afghanistan Mm-hmm. True. And the U.S. and other Western allies um, supported the the rebels against them, the Mujahideen, who many of them ended up forming the Taliban. And so when the U.S. invaded Iraq themselves in the 21st century, they were fighting against people who had weapons that the U.S. had literally given them. So just... This is the way the world works, people, and yeah. uh, it is what it is. Hindsight's yesterday, 2020. The, yesterday, the U.S. was successful over Iran. They were <laughs> on on the soccer field. Hey, a battle's a battle. Take it. Yeah. Take it. Um, uh, that's not true. I'll retract that. <laughs> I was going to say, Tim, sounds more like something I would say. Yeah, um, which is, I thought that too, and that's why I retracted it. <laughs> All right. Also in 79, Margaret Thatcher is elected as the first female prime minister of Britain. Hmm. And she won three consecutive elections. So she was a successful politician, the Iron Lady, and uh, much loved by her supporters and much hated by her opponents. The Iron Lady is a title. Oh, yeah. She was like the British Ronald Reagan, only a lady and maybe even more hardcore. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of her. That was her, that was her vibe. Um, 1985, Coca-Cola introduces New Coke. Uh, it fails miserably, <laughs> and they have to return to the Coke Classic. The the, the funniest thing I've, I've read about this is, like, they would do blind taste tests, mm-hmm. and in the blind taste test, most people would choose the new Coke, but just the fact that the can looked different, and they knew it was different, and it wasn't what they grew up with, people refused to buy it. And so they're like, fine, they just went back to the, back to the old recipe, I guess. Yeah, the notion that people don't like change. Hmm has deep roots. (laughs) It does. It does. Uh, In 1986, the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl explodes. 
Mm. Um, didn't kill a ton of people initially, but obviously the fallout over years and years and years um, has had significant right. effects and impacts on, in the local population. Um, 1987, the disposable camera is invented. That thing had, was kind of a flash in the pan, wasn't it? The disposable camera? I mean, so yeah. invented in 87. I mean, you might still be able to buy them, but I don't No, see. no. The digital camera would have well, replaced that pretty quickly. No, I know. That's what I'm saying, though. Like, it wasn't... It was kind of a flash in the pan, I think. Yeah, so maybe from 87 to the early 2000s. Yeah. I remember going to Scotland with my dad when I was, I don't know, eight years old. Yeah. And I had a couple disposable cameras. And so... Yeah, just a different world back then. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and the last thing I've got is in 1989, on November 9th, we have the fall of the Berlin Wall. All right, so there have been a couple of times when I've just seen like really incredible things mm. without really planning for it, right? So um, when I was when I was a kid, we had this old black and white TV um, that we had, we, we used the bunny ears and that sort of thing. Um, later on, there is this little, what we would call today a dongle, um, where you would screw it into the back, the UHF and VHF receiving areas. You'd screw it onto the back and you could hook cable up to it. My parents had gotten a console, tel- a colored console television, so okay. that became the main thing. What are you going to do with this old black and white one? Stick it in my room. And you you couldn't really do much with it. You turn it on, and you get like these fuzzy pictures, even if it was hooked up to the cable and, right. and whatever. But on that TV, I happened to be watching the World Series. I think it was in 1988. Okay. The Giants against uh, the Athletics when that massive earthquake hit and collapsed uh, bridges and all that sort of thing. Oh, wow. Like, I was watching the game, and all of a sudden the camera starts wobbling and all like this, right? So I I didn't watch a lot of baseball on that. I was in elementary school. I didn't really have the the attention span to sit and watch full games. Mm -hmm. I just remember watching it on that. I, I remember coming home from school and turning it on and watching the Berlin Wall fall. Wow. Like, just by chance turned it on hmm. and watched it wow. uh, unfold. Um, I Not on that television, but when I was in first grade, one thing that you didn't mention, I remember sitting uh, with my class. We were going to watch the Space Shuttle Challenger take oh, off. Wow. And we were all like, I'm going a, I'm a to be an astronaut. Oh, right, no. and there was a first grade teacher. I think she's first grade teacher on the on the shuttle, mm. and we're watching and watching, and all of a sudden you see things start going wrong, and the shuttle just explode. Wow! And all of a sudden people were like, "I don't think I'm gonna be an astronaut anymore." <laughs> I was just talking. Yeah. Um, oh, man. But it, it's it's fascinating to get to a point where you start going. Major world events. Mm-hmm. I remember that. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. We're not there yet for me. Because um, I'm just a young buck. Or at least I tell myself that. You know, I feel older and older every day. Um, okay, so today we're going to be talking about something that occurs. Um, it may, You know, maybe it starts in the 60s, but really takes root in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s. Um, but we're going to be talking about the church growth movement. Mm-hmm. Church growth movement, and like, admittedly, a little bit hard to define in some regards. It is right. Yeah. It's kind. Of, it's a bit of this kind of ambiguous kind of movement. Um, it's it's. There's more to it than just wanting churches to grow. Mm-hmm. Like it's not. It's not just being like, hey, we want to see more people get saved. Like that's kind of always been what the churches wanted. Um, and so it's it's a bit difficult to define where it started and where it ended, or right. if it even has ended. I I think I think the hardest thing for us to do is going to be talking about an end, right? Because the the more I the more I was looking into this, the more the emergent church just feels like an evolution of the church growth movement and not right. a movement in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, 
And so what we're what we're dealing with is is this concept of pendulum swings mm-hmm. back and forth, right? Like in, on a separate issue, we were talking about this earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have the church, which has been caught in these theological debates for quite a while now, sure, right? Liberal theology versus fundamentalism, mm-hmm. right? And everyone taking their stance theologically, arguing against each other, where you at, where am I at? Let's examine each other. But if you hold to that, you might be running down a slippery slope. And and so eventually people are like, that's too heady. We've lost focus on mission. Mm-hmm. Mission is the most important thing. And so mission becomes the most important thing in the church growth movement. Mm-hmm. And it's it's reactionary. It's a reactionary movement. Right, right. Yeah, against yeah. the kind of the these theological debates. Yeah, I think... One one place you could kind of, or one person you could point to as kind of a key player in the rise of the church growth movement is someone who uh, never actually pastored a huge church. Um, his name was Donald McGavran. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born uh, on the mission field in India. He was a third generation mi- missionary. So his father and his grandfather had also been missionaries in India. So he grew up there on the mission field. Right. Uh, travels to the States to get an education, studies at all these prestigious schools, including the Yale Divinity School. And he starts having this kind of area of focus. He he had this issue that was just really bothering him. In the context of Christian missions in India, you had certain places where there's just massive conversion happening, like these mass conversions, like yeah. entire villages just converting, right? Entire regions just becoming Christian almost overnight. And then other areas where work's being done, it's just, it's very slow. They're struggling to plant churches. Those churches are struggling to grow. And so this is kind of something that he's, he's trying to wrap his mind around. He goes back to India, serves there until 1958, and then he goes back to the States again and starts petitioning various seminaries uh, to start a department that is focused on church growth. Right. So kind of a new area. He wants he's wanting to develop this new area of study, and so in 1961, the Institute of Church Growth was started at the Northwest Christian College. Um, in 65, then he kind of he moves and, and kind of moves the the center of this movement to Fuller Theological Seminary in California, um, and under his leadership, Fuller's Mission School becomes the largest one in the world, at least by number of students. Right, and it's not surprising that this would come from an MK. Mm-hmm. Right, oh, yeah. Uh, because the criticism is going to be, and, and and the reason I open saying that this is going to be a lot about rants for me, um, the what happens what happens through this whole thing is just baby and bathwater mentality. Yeah. Right. When you're on the mission field in a place like India, that is entirely unreached. Your strategy is strictly evangelism and -hmm. mission, Mm -hmm. right? There's very little discipleship taking place. You come to the U.S., and let's say you're in the Bible Belt, and you look around, you're like, there's a significant number of people that are at least churched. Mm -hmm. At least they understand the lingo, Right. right? And so the role then is more developing those people inside of the church, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is going to make it more of a doctrinal conversation. Right. Um, and so so to take that doctrinal conversation and put it into India, it's entirely out of place, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, how are you going to go sit down with people who have never heard the gospel, entirely unreached, and be like, let's talk about mm-hmm. the difference between one-handed and two-handed soteriology. Right. Right. Uh, and why one is superior to the other based on the Greek text. Right. It doesn't make any sense. It's <laughs> it's too much too soon. Right, right, right. But at the same time, to come into a place like the Bible Belt and just jump straight in with, let me tell you about this man named Jesus you've never heard of. People were kind of like, I- I've kind of heard of it. Right. Right? <laughs> so there there is a bit of contextualization mm-hmm. that has to take place in these kinds of arguments. Yeah. And, and I think sort of... Backing up from it, noticing that contextualization mm-hmm. 
is helpful. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Um, he, he wrote probably one of his most famous books in 1970, um, or he published it in 1970 at least, uh, known as Understanding Church Growth. And there's something kind of new and fresh that he, he articulates in that in that book. And it's a, a concept that he saw as being really important to successful evangelism. And it's the homogenous unit principle. And so that's, those are some big words. Let me, let me just define it. His, his idea was that people with common attributes are more likely to come to faith together in larger numbers. Mm-hmm. So in India, the way this plays out what he would advocate for is like, okay, you're in a city, right? So like, okay, these far-flung rural communities, they're seeing mass conversion, but in the cities, they're not. And that's because you need a church plant for every caste. Right. Because, Which is also a contextualization. Right. So so each caste is going to need their own church because there's too much difference between people in different in different castes in the mm-hmm. in, in Indian society for, for them to overcome. And so like you just want to remove that that barrier right. for people to interact with one another, right? So that that's how it plays out in India. In America, what do you do? And so this can play out in a variety of ways. You have a church for every socioeconomic group or a church for each racial group or whatever. It's it's about defining who your target is. Yeah. Who's the target audience, right? Are you going after young professionals? Are you going after, you know, middle-aged what factory workers? It's it's always young families. So <laughs> that's always the answer. You know this. You know this because you are currently in that stage. Yeah. And you know every time you go to visit a church mm-hmm. and people see you walk in with kids, they lose their minds. Yeah. And they come racing toward you. I know. And then I tell them I'm a pastor at another church. They're like, dang. Visibly disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and sometimes I've even had them walk away and be like, oh. Like, like not just like forget you, angry walk away, but you can see them just sort of like backing out of the conversation. Yeah. I got other things to mess with. Yeah. I visited a church. Uh, I won't mention it, but a few months ago, a local church, and I was by myself. And I intentionally kind of hung around in the lobby before and after the mm-hmm. service and nobody talked to me guaranteed if i had my wife and kids there we would have got swarmed yeah uh it's just it's, it's just, just the, how it is just the way it works man yeah. um okay so out of this church growth movement this is kind of as it's being this is not necessarily on the ground this is in the academy but there's in in his writings there's kind of five basic principles for for church growth right first one is you know uh numerical growth right like i mean that's that's what you you want to see is numerical growth um focus on the receptivity in converts so how receptive are people like how how can you determine which people are going to be more receptive or not yeah um focusing on on people movements or people groups the whole homogenous thing like who's your target how are you going to go after that um the use of like scientific research and data to determine how to practice evangelism what's going to be most effective let's let's do some studies let's figure that out right they start doing these types of things um things like the barna institute right are going to come out of this right which is a really useful organization Mm -hmm. but does these large-scale studies of like what do people believe and what are their what are they doing sure um and essentially that the the right method is going to guarantee a large response all you got to do is find the right set of moves, the right recipe in a particular context to a particular people, and you're going to see huge things happen. Yeah. So I would say, I would say the core, the way I would describe that core is it, it's a sociological study Mm. in the same way that industry does sociological studies. Sure. Right. You talked about Coke, Mm -hmm. right? Everyone has learned from them. If you have a successful product and you need to change it, don't tell people. Right. <laughs> Had they changed Coke and not said anything, people would have been blissfully unaware. Right. And they probably would have increased their sales because blind taste tests proved that it would have. <laughs> so doing these kinds of studies to say what are people into mm-hmm. and how do they respond right, sets the stage for... How then do we proceed? Yeah. Yeah. So over the next couple of decades, right, these principles are not just talked about, but actually 
applied, right? There's there's mm-hmm. conferences, seminars, there's entire publishing houses devoted to this kind of thing, right? Where they're putting out books like, you know, your church is real possibilities, your church can grow, this, mm-hmm. you know, here's the method, here's what you need to do. Um, you know, and I think there is, within the church and within this movement, a genuine love for evangelism. Yep. Like, like, this is not, like, even though... You know, I think we're both going to come to a place where we can say this is a bit of a mixed bag mm-hmm. or a double-edged sword or whatever analogy people want to plug in here. Like there is a genuine love and desire for evangelism. And now we've just, we've coupled that with these pragmatic marketing strategies, right? So we're taking these principles that are, I've been useful in the, in the corporate world, in the business world and saying, okay, what can we do? How can we use these, these principles, these strategies, this data and apply it to selling jesus which i mean that sounds terrible but like okay maybe that's that that's too harsh yeah it is but 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 how how can we make it make ourselves more effective in evangelism by applying these principles but here's the thing you called it a double-edged sword yeah that implies that there is a good useful edge oh for sure and that it's beneficial oh yeah a mixed bag sure means that in that bag Mm -hmm. are profoundly useful things oh for sure the rant I have in this is the whole baby and bathwater. Both sides are yeah. like, so a, a straw man argument in the in the purpose of debate. A straw man mm-hmm. argument is when you say, because my opponent opponent takes it to this degree, mm-hmm. their position is wrong. Right. Whether or not they take it to that degree, mm-hmm. whether or not that degree is necessary, mm. right? To say. The greatest ills of my opponent's position mm-hmm. are the characteristics of my opponent's position. Mm-hmm. And I can chop that thing up easily. Right. Why? Because it's a straw man. It can't fight back. It's a dummy. Right? And and to get into these these notions of like, is it helpful to know what people around you are looking for? Yeah. Of course it is. Yeah, for sure. Right? Like uh in my last church, there was there was talk about like we're not reaching our community. Right? What do we do? Well, a lot of churches like to do things. We do it here. Community meals. Mm-hmm. Well, we were in Lower Etobicoke. We were in a pretty affluent place. Right. Right? People, even then, were paying multi-million dollars for their homes in that neighborhood. Right. Um, yeah, they don't need a meals ministry. Yeah. We would have to have given people bus fare. Right to ride in to the meals ministry and then bus fare back to wherever they were staying. Right. Uh, doing that research and knowing that mm. is helpful, mm-hmm. right? If if you've got something in your church's logo, people may not like the topic, but branding mm-hmm. that is particularly offensive mm. and it's an easy thing to change, why not just remove that stumbling block? It's right. meaningless. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, so, oh, for sure. So these things can be very useful. Oh, yeah. They don't drive the cart, but man, they can help. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah, this isn't sure. your this isn't your engine. Yeah. But, you know, it yeah. could be the grease that you need on the wheels. For sure. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think like, uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of things. There's going to be a lot of things that come out of this movement. And we'll, we'll talk about this probably closer to the, the end of the episode, but like there's principles and things that came out of this that, that we're, we, we use mm-hmm. right Absolutely. on a regular basis for sure. So I think the, well, maybe we don't even need to get to the critique. Um, um, we can, I have critiques. Well, I think like, well, and yeah, I just don't know if it's the right time in the, okay. in the story to, sure. to get we to it. Wait. But so what ends up happening is that these these strategies work. Mm-hmm. Turns out you find out what the people are looking for, and you you set that up. It it, it works. And Marketing so, matters. Yeah. So it's this is going to be directly related to the rise of the megachurch. So in 1970, there were 50 megachurches in the U.S. and that was defined by churches with over 2,000 members. Okay. So there's 50 in 1970. In 1990, there's 310. By 2007, there's over 1,200. Right. Um, so that's, again, that is just kind of a demonstrable proof of the how this works, how this right. plays out. Someone right now is yelling at their speakers hmm. for us to define what we mean by works. It grows, they're gonna, they're it grows gonna the say, church. The church grows. <laughs> they're going to maybe even argue. Right. Did the church grow 
Or did they just have more people coming? Right. Yes, and. Right. Or did that church grow because 10 others died? Right. <laughs> right. A, a sort a, of a Walmart principle. Right. Yeah. Right. Walmart comes into town mm-hmm. and all the small business owners hate it mm-hmm. because Walmart does it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And so it's more accessible, mm-hmm. less expensive, mm-hmm. and they run out of business. Yeah. Right. Um, so those things, those things happen as well. Mm-hmm. But by works, we don't mean to say all of these people in these mega churches were and remained to be devout believers mm. of Christ, right? Right. The goal was to get as many people through the door as possible mm-hmm. so that they would at least be exposed. Right. That goal was achieved. It was. It worked. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, yeah, it, it did. And I think And I think there's more positives to the outcome than, than that alone too i think i think there's there's some there is some meaningful stuff that came right. out of it no 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 when i when i say that's the goal mm-hmm. i don't mean that's that's the only goal right i right. mean the principle behind doing the market research mm-hmm. was to say how can we engage with more people right yeah right and yeah. and that engagement has varying degrees of biblical weight right oh for right sure. and so and so that the overarching thing is engage with as many people as possible mm-hmm. is profoundly successful right whether or not they take that engagement and do biblical things with it is kind of case by case right well for me it's kind of like i think there's a principle like there's a principle it's almost like it's almost like physics right mm-hmm. where you have like you know something like out in space an object that has a more significant mass is going to have a greater gravitational pull, right? So people know that there's a church in town that mm-hmm. has thousands of people showing up. They're more likely to, to go to that church, right? So it's going to it's going to naturally draw more things into its you know sphere of influence, mm-hmm. um, just by nature of how things work, right? Um, for for better or for worse. Um, so okay, let's talk about some of the the key characters. We we don't have to do these deep dives on them, but just talk about some of these names that people may or may not recognize. Uh, the first one is Robert Schuler. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Schuler, Dutch Reform background, um, served in the Reformed Church um, a couple of, in a couple different Reformed churches before establishing Garden Grove Community Church in California. It was a relatively new community. This is like. They're building the subdivisions, right? Post-war America. Right. This is in the, the mid-60s, I think. Um, so just like you've got your cookie-cutter, leave-it-to-beaver families moving to this community by the thousands, mm-hmm. right? And and so, you know, he starts doing some kind of unique things. He starts doing things like drive-in services, right? He starts like just kind of trying out these different ways of kind of making it as convenient and easy as possible for people to be involved in what he's got going on. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, that would be largely successful. He's going to be the guy who builds the Crystal Cathedral. Right. He's going to do the Hour of Power, right? And Robert Schuller, um, despite his Dutch Reformed background, is really going to lean in to you know, what he would describe as positive Christianity, just really focusing in on the good stuff, right? And, you know, I'm sure if you, you press them on what his theological stance is, it's going to be pretty solid. But what gets proclaimed from the pulpit, you know, what goes on TV or over the radio in the hour of power is going to be overwhelmingly positive, encouraging. Right. We're going we're gonna to lean into that, right? Like even some of the book, like the books he wrote, these are titles of some of his best-selling books, Ways to the Good Life, Move ahead with possibility thinking, self-esteem, the new reformation. If it's going to be, it's up to me. Like these, this is this is what he's about, and people love yep. it, right? And and this is this is the beginnings of the dark side. Yeah, right. So what happens is because the goal was to engage with as many people as possible. That was the goal behind the movement. And that is taking place. It is, by their standard, by their measure, a success. Right. So you have to keep feeding the beast. Right. 
right? You can't you can't at this point say, okay, we've engaged with enough people. Let's start talking about things that maybe these people don't want to talk about, but it's necessary that they talk about. Yeah. Right? It's it's spiritually fruitful or even essential. Right. Issues of sin and repentance. Oh yeah. Um so what so what happens is and and I've seen this in my own experience uh in being a part of leadership teams within these churches, right? Um, what happens is you bring a person, what you what you win them with, you keep them with, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this sort of meet them where they are, speaking to their felt needs, brings those people in. You change the message, people start leaving. Mm. And now, because the metric is about numbers, you are no longer successful, right? Mm. And, and and that's where they have to just keep pumping these. And, and many times, like you said, many of these people come at it with the best of intentions. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have no gripe with the notion of engage with as many people as you possibly can. Sure. But when that becomes the engine mm-hmm. and the focus of all that you're doing... Other things have to have to take aside, and and that good intention never actually turns to mm-hmm. the gospel initiative that the church exists for. You never move past that um, that place of introductory trying to keep the people with what they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just, I guess, the idea that your church would mature past that doesn't come to be. Right, right, and and, and that's not to say because I'm from a different position. That's a historical statement mm-hmm. made by a number of the guys we're going to talk about mm-hmm. in reflections on what they did. Oh, yeah. Because in the last 10 years, many of them have written books on, this is what we were trying to do, mm-hmm. and we didn't nail it. Right, yeah. Yeah, and one of those one of those guys, let's talk about one of them right now, is, mm-hmm. is a guy by the name of Bill Hybels. Probably the most known of all of the people we're going to talk right. about. Right, yeah. So Bill Hybels also... Dutch American background, uh, born and raised in Michigan, also reformed background initially. Uh, studied while he was studying at Trinity International University in Chicago, he starts a youth group that you know included modern music, dramatic skits, media, all sorts of things. Uh, this is around 1970, mm-hmm. um, and the group grew from like 25 to over a thousand within a few years. Um, it's just massive, right? This massive success. And, you know, and because they were kind of developing a youth ministry around, okay, what is going to engage them? What's going to keep them coming, right? Mm-hmm. And so he decides then to plant a church that's going to essentially do that, but not just for a youth group, but but as a church, right? Right. What's going to suit the, the needs, the tastes of, you know, the generation. And, and so in October of 1975... Um, he rented Willow Creek Theater in Palatine, Illinois, and began holding services, right? And it's like, it's some of this stuff is really cool stories. Like in the early days, they raised money to pay the rent for the theater by selling tomatoes door to door. You know what I mean? Like, that's just cool. Right. Right. Like, there is some like awesome, like, grassroots stuff in the early days of some of these movements where things go from this tiny little group into something significant Mm -hmm. and it's really cool and amazing. And I can imagine how exciting it would have been to have been part of that, especially in those early days. Right. And like, yeah, it's hugely successful and there's huge growth. Right. And that it becomes this, this massive thing, right? Like, I mean, it, it grows to become one of the largest churches in America. Willow Creek is, I mean, people know the name Willow Creek. Right. Um, it became a model of success for the church growth movement. Like, you want to have a successful church? Copy what Willow Creek is doing. Their leadership conference, annual mm-hmm. leadership conference, mm-hmm. was a staple for oh, a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, I mean, right now they, they have seven different locations. Their their main auditorium seats over 7,000. Their attendance, uh, pre-pandemic anyways, was about 25K. I think like most churches, it's not quite there any yet, but um, them just looking that data up like just recently. Mm-hmm. Now, here's here's an interesting thing, and you kind of touched to this first. So Hybels himself, later on in his career, closer to, you know, 
our time now than when he planted the church, he began to recognize that there were some issues with their model. And here's his own words. He, he, in his own words, the church had become an evangelizing machine that doesn't drive the roots down deep and do all the other things it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like getting people in, getting people engaged, and getting people more in and getting them, right? And it's just like, you know, but that is kind of the, it didn't go beyond that. And he even recognized that that was, that was an issue with their model. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think it's important to note here um, some of these guys have failures yep. that have cost them, yep. right? I don't want to presume that that's who they were from the beginning. Right. That the whole point was always, like, one, one of the key things that people like to say in this moment is that this entire group is trying to build their own personal kingdom mm where they are to be worshipped, where they will amass for themselves huge followings and wealth, mm. and it had nothing to do with God. Mm. I don't agree with that. Right. Right? Sure, they're human, and, and maybe it was too much. Mm. Maybe they ended up with too much, and it caused them to fail. Maybe some of them wanted it from the beginning, mm. right? I just think it's important to be careful how broad a brush we paint with. Yeah. I don't presume to know uh, their souls. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's just the disclaimer for anyone who would be listening, thinking, mm-hmm. yeah, but I know what comes of him, right? right? Like that was his thing all along. I don't think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Him. Yeah. And yeah. And I think it's tricky, right? Because especially, so a lot of these, a lot of these examples, a lot of these megachurches, not all of them, but many are going to be non-denominational. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to have um, a plurality of elders in the way that like we would we would hold to. Right. So the man at the top truly is at the top, right? Yeah. He is the man of God. You've got you know one guy over, you know, he and he might have other staff and other el- like. I'm not saying that you know he's doing everything himself, but he is at the top of that pyramid of tens of thousands of people, and it's hard when you're in that position. Not to start drinking your own Kool-Aid a little bit, right? Yeah. Like, we've seen it happen so many times. Right. But I, I would say, again, I don't know if that was the ecclesiological position from the get-go, mm. right? So this movement doesn't genuinely consist, by and large, of established churches that take on a new philosophy of ministry. Right. Many of these guys are church planters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Parachurch groups that become church groups, mm-hmm. right? And so they're dealing with super young people, really new believers. Um, they don't have the base of people to work with mm-hmm. for elders. Mm-hmm. And so the people who do become elders in their church are people who were brought up by the church. Right. And and he's been their only pastor. Right. Right? And and so there is this level of inflation of them, right? Mm. Because I think I think it's fair to say they don't always operate as if there is a plurality of elders. Mm. But I think if you just Google search the church, you'd find out there are. Right? Right. Oh, there be there are elders, but it's I don't know if it's I don't know if there's an equality amongst the elders necessarily, right? No, that and that's true. And and, and part of that is because they would say, mm, right. right, like, you've been here, like, the only thing that my Christian world knows mm. is you as our leader. Right, right. And so why would I go against that? Yeah, yeah. you just see in certain contexts where, like, so it, it is kind of that situation where there's a, an individual. Now, more recently than the stuff we're talking about, um, like the example of Mark Driscoll on Mars Hill, right? It's the exact same scenario. Yeah. Once, but then for him, it's like after listening to kind of what happened there, it's like once some of his elders who had, you know, maybe had come to faith underneath him, mm-hmm. but once they'd matured to a point where they're like, they're able to handle and teach scripture well themselves and they start pushing back against some of the things he was about, that's when things right. really unraveled, right? right? Um, yeah. And I mean, Bill Hybels, I mean, People are going to know that there's been there were allegations of sexual impropriety, um, mm-hmm. and he's no longer there at Willow Creek, and 
it was a bit of a mess. I think they've kind of bounced back as a church from it, but um, you know, these these things happen, and uh, it's happened. My, happened. We don't want to. We don't want to say these things happen in the sort of boys will be boys. Oh no, interpretation no, no. being no, left no. open. I didn't right? say that. I was right. not saying that. I know. I know. I'm just saying. When, sometimes when people use the phrase "these mm-hmm. things happen." They mean it dismissively. People in positions... But I was just wanted to point yeah. out that's not what you meant. People in positions of authority, the greater the authority is, mm-hmm. the more likely they are to Just because it. everything that we say gets blown out onto the internet. I know, And true. people are going to use right. sound bites. Fair enough. Um, okay, and let's talk then about someone who's even a little bit more recent and okay. a little bit closer to our own tribe, because it is a Baptist church, technically. Um Rick Warren. Yep. So Rick was born in California in 1954, got his MDiv from Southwestern, got his D-Min at Fuller Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he would have been, you know, studying maybe not under the original the original guys, but would have been exposed to this church growth stuff because Fuller was the kind right. of the center for it. Um, in 1980, he and his wife, they begin a Bible study uh, with seven other people. In their condo in Saddleback Valley, right. That a lot of people know Rick Warren because he wrote the best-selling Christian book next to the Bible, right? Right, Purpose Driven Life. Right. Before Purpose Driven Life was the Purpose Driven Church, mm-hmm. and he waited until his church was at like ten to fifteen thousand before actually publishing his book. Hmm. In that book, though, there's this great story of how him and his wife just. Almost do the, like, throw a dart at a map thing to figure out where they're going to go. <laughs> okay. They show up. The realtor helps them find their apartment. They witness to him. He becomes the first member of their Bible study. That's awesome. And then it was just, like, the girl at the checkout line becomes number two. Right. Right? right. And, uh, and so, again, we're not playing your game. Like, if, if mm. you want to get in the game, like... Everything these people do is bad because they did a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. I'm not here for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or everything that they did is great and we should sweep everything else under the rug right. because <laughs> what is the greater outcome? I'm right. not playing that game either. Right, right. I'm just right. gonna say there's some really great obedience and energy around evangelism. Yeah. That they get that story kicked off, and it's oh, incredible. Yeah. yeah, there's some really, really cool stories, like especially in the early days of of churches like Saddleback. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he 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 does kind of a bit of what others kind of did before him, just kind of like polling the local neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? So, like, hey, are you going to a church? If not, what are the reasons why? Mm-hmm. Right? And people are like, well, it's it's boring, it's not relevant enough to my everyday life don't feel welcomed, right? Whatever, whatever it is, right? All these, these kinds of answers come up. And so like using that information, he, you know, takes that into account and using the feedback, he designs, uh, you know, approach to doing church that, you know, sought to remove these barriers, these Mm -hmm. things that were keeping people away. Right. And, and so, you know, trying to respond, um, to what the people, want or or to remove the things that are that are like i said remove the barriers and it's massively successful like crazy 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 successful like the growth is spectacular just as it was with willow creek just as it was with the crystal cathedral right um you know it it, again in the same way that we would define define it the first time it it works Mm -hmm. right like it works it grows people hear the gospel and like I mean, I think I read somewhere that they they estimate at Saddleback Church they've they've baptized over fifty thousand people amongst all their their campuses. That's a lot of people, and and in the same way we kind of talked about the whole like Billy Graham thing, mm-hmm. where it's like all the people who heard, all the people who came forward, and even if like even if people might say, okay, well, there's maybe some people who you know participate in these types of church who ended up falling away because maybe they didn't get it connected enough or maybe they didn't get discipled enough. It's like, right. I mean, 50,000 people is 50,000 people. And that's not people you're snagging from other churches. That's 50,000 converts. Yeah. Because, baptizing. Because Rick Warren was very clear. Mm. Like their new member intake 
would have questions like would would have statements e- even in the, like their welcome card mm. when they when they were young. If you're here because you came from another church, mm-hmm. you're awesome. We love that you're brother and sister in Christ. It might be best for you to go back to your church mm. and be a member of change and growth there. Mm. That's right? Cool. They were they were openly against the piggyback kind hmm. of concept, the bandwagon riding kind of thing. And and even to the point people go months without being apart, they would write a letter that essentially said, "Hey, you know what? There are a lot of people that believe that they're right before God mm. because they have a church membership." Mhm. We don't want to be that stumbling block for you. <laughs> so your church membership's been revoked. Oh, man. Right? After multiple conversations with <laughs> right, those sure, people. Right, sure, sure, yeah. So some things that that even, I would say, even the most conservative of pastors who would be most aggressive against them wouldn't go that far. Right, to so, pull people's memberships, yeah. So it wasn't growth at all cost, mm-hmm. which is often the complaint against them. Yeah. Right? The complaint against them is... Because you did the market research, mm-hmm. you gathered felt needs. Whether right. those are actual needs or not, you gathered felt needs. Mm-hmm. And you allowed the lost world to dictate the church. Right. My church is more godly mm. because nobody wants to be here. <laughs> because, because they don't think that I have anything to offer their life. <laughs> And, and genuinely, I have heard people say this. I've heard mm. people say, more godly because the music's bad. Right. <laughs> because the improvement <laughs> of instrumentation and, this, and that sort of thing became a big part of this. Right. And I have literally heard aggressors against the movement say, right. the most refreshing thing happened to me when I went to this church and the music was bad. Right. And I was just like, this is genuine worship. This is what it's all about. Right. Right? And I think, you know what? Like, even if modern, even if, when, when people want to make the argument, like, modern worship is all about performance, mm. I mean, come on, from the age of special music, oh yeah, choirs and pianos and organs, those things. Those were actually performance, because everyone would sit in their seat while the person sang. Right. And, and they ran the same risk of being performance. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I would, I would argue whether or not it's performance or genuine worship might have more to do with the heart of the recipient Mm. than the heart of the one leading the song. Just going to throw that out there. I like that. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to put that one in my back pocket. I'll quote you, I'll quote you the first time. And then the next time I'll say, as I've said before. Right. And then the, and then the third time you're like, as I always say. <laughs> no, I think that's, I think that's helpful. And I think, yeah. And it, cause, cause what, what there is now, because here's the thing, like so the church growth movement and the success of it was widely popular, even outside of these circles. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so you'll have, you know, we'll, you'll have pastors, even within our local fellowship, you know, talk about um, the attractional model, mm-hmm. right? The attractional model of church growth. Um, that's a thing that is going to be very popular amongst guys who are Rick Warren's age. Mm-hmm. You're not going to hear. And sometimes guys my age might push back against that and maybe push back too hard. Like, nah, we're going to go back to the roots. We're going to Another like, reaction. Right. Right. Yeah. So like, and I, and I can be, I even recognize that in myself sometimes I can be that way. Right. Like, um, I don't want to fall into some of the issues that came mm-hmm. about with that movement, but I got to be careful that I'm not just pushing back against everything because there are some, there's a, there's a mixed legacy from the church growth movement, an ongoing legacy, you might even say, mm-hmm. um, that are, there's pros and cons. Like there's good things and there's, you know, less than good things. Right. I, I like Timothy Keller's approach to it where he says there's a difference between being attractive and attractional. Right. Right. So the, the notion that the attractional church is like everything we do is based on having people want to be here. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the attractive church is like, we're not trying to throw stumbling blocks in your way, mm-hmm. right? The attractional church might say, 
we need a building that doesn't look like a church building. It looks like a different kind of building because non-believers are going to be less intimidated by it. This is the experience we want all of them to have. We're an attractive church. Might still be, might say, I don't care if it looks like a church or not. That's not theologically viable at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the gathering of God's people. That's our focus. Mm -hmm. But also, we don't want the paint peeling off the walls, and we don't want to be at a place where we're not talking to people when they come in. We we want to greet people well, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, I, I I've often said. I'm I'm down with the with learning from the church growth movement on what they do to get people to the threshold mm -hmm. of the sanctuary. Mm. After that, this is the gathering of God's people for worship. Yeah, amen. Right? Um we we have spent probably the last 20 years talking about the consumerist mentality in the church. Right, I even said it last Sunday. Mm. We've confused ourselves as being a people who are the mission versus a people who are on mission. Yeah. Right, and and a lot of that is birthed from this. Right. Right. Everything is about what can the church, i.e., the staff, mm. do to make this a place that you want to be, where where you know there's affirmation entertainment, whatever it is that you find interesting and attractive mm. uh, that keeps you there. Right. Right? And if, if that fails to keep you there, then they're failing. Yeah. Right? Um, there's there's just so much gray around this. To be honest, Scripture doesn't speak to it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, like, for me, I think, so the idea of, like, removing barriers that might prevent people from being part of the church I think that's fine as long as you're not removing barriers that are scriptural barriers. Yep. Right? And so, and I think in some instances, and I'm not necessarily, you know, I'm not an expert on the history of Saddleback. So I'm not, I'm not, I just know that in certain contexts that I'm aware of, um, like there are barriers that are scriptural that have been removed because it's, it's mm -hmm. getting people in the doors at all costs, even truth. Mm -hmm. Right? Or it's it's finding a lowest common denominator, you know, in order to kind yeah. of make it as easy as possible for people to be to be a part of it, right? Yeah. My my understanding just because I, I feel like we wanna we wanna treat people fairly. Mm -hmm. Right. Um my understanding is that it's a a numbing and a watering down, not not heretical. No, no. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah. so that's the, the compromise right. is, is areas that become vague mm -hmm. and watered down. I mean, purpose-driven life is a, full of examples of this, right? Mm. Um, where it could have been, should have been more clear, mm. um, but intentionally not. Right. Yet, also, if you want to, like, take him before a board and be like, let's talk about heresy, apostasy, these kinds of things. Right, right. You're not going to find that either. No, of course not. Yeah. Of course not. No. It's just, again, if, the, if, if one of the key goals is to reach, you know, have as many people come into your church or have your radio broadcast on as many stations as possible or have as many people buy your books as possible, mm -hmm. right, you're going to have to you know, be real light on certain issues. Right. Right. Um, because, you know, to take a, to take a hard stand on certain issues, um, is going to limit the scope of your influence. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, like we don't need to be, we don't need to be hardliners on every issue under the sun, but it's just, it's finding that balance, man. It's just, it's tricky, right? It's, it's tricky to kind of navigate that. And, um, and th this one, this one's a fascinating one for for us to talk about, for me to talk about, because I've lived through this, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm, my church experience began very young, right? So I've, I've watched all of this, not as a historical hindsight reflection, mm -hmm. but this is what church does, right? Right? Like 
inside of it. And right now we minister in a place where we can't even clearly say if this is historical. Right. Right. Is this history or journalism? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's true. Uh, and, and so, and so examining it is, is really kind of fascinating mm-hmm. because when we think through, like there are so many issues of, uh, that come from this movement that I don't even know if we recognize them. Right. Right. So anything going on in the church that is demographically focused is a part of this. Sure. The small group movement, like Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren, mm-hmm. was at one point the foundational document for most pastors on what a small group even is. Right. <laughs> right? That was that was a big thrust yeah, yeah. of his how we reached people in a way that was more accessible to them. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's like we probably have people that would sit around and be like, I don't listen to that podcast anymore because they they gave some level of validity to Rick Warren <laughs> and I'm gonna go tell my small group not to listen to those guys anymore because of the validity that they've offered to them. And that's gonna that's gonna be how I start our, our small group Bible study this week, right? Uh, but it, it it's true. It's it's so much for better and worse, it's so much shaped who we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, yeah, and still is, yeah, in ways that only time will help us identify mm-hmm. where even this played out to show us the most positive and the most negative. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, no, I think that's fair, right? Like, I, I, I think I, I appreciate the idea of the inten- intentionality of some of the things that that came with the church growth movement, like the the emphasis on on getting to know the the community and the context that you're mm-hmm. in, right? And like and taking that into consideration when you're applying because there are there are foundational biblical tasks that the church has been given. Mm-hmm. But there is like there is wiggle room in how those are how those play out specifically based on your context. Right. Right. And so and so it's good to know rather than just saying, well, these are the ministries, like these are the the specific ministries and the way we've done these ministries forever and this is how we do it regardless of whether that or not that's effective like it's good for us to have a bit of a wake-up call and look at things right and it's good for us to like have good music or as as good as we can come up with anyways right, right. To, to 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 have excellence and whatnot these are all these are all good things My- right i if i was going to give it like I would also say that is my chief criticism of the movement mm. is it became hyper focused on the community. Well, yeah, community became everything, mm-hmm. right? And you do nothing to upset the community, right? Right? If a pastor upsets the community, that guy's got to go mm-hmm. because the community is everything, right? Right? And so, even to the point. That it is the community that is going to win people unto salvation, right? To say, if they love us and they love what we're doing here, Mm -hmm. then they are going to come and be a part, and eventually they're even going to hear about Christ. And maybe they won't be so offended at a call of repentance. Yeah. I I have heard a pastor in an interview say, we participate in the church growth mm-hmm. thing because we believe that we can meet people's needs. They can become Christians. And once they've become a Christian, they can then hear... <clears throat> about their need to repent and turn away from their sin and mm-hmm. trust in Christ. You're not a Christian until you've done that. Right, I know. Right? So the, the notion of becoming—and and, and the church growth movement in its, in its darkest place mm-hmm. treats the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. We are all born as sinners in need of a Savior, incapable of saving ourselves. Mm-hmm. We must die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. Mm-hmm. Like the weird uncle— Mm-hmm. Right? Like you've you've got a girlfriend and you're gonna bring her to family Christmas, mm-hmm. but you know that your uncle's gonna be there mm-hmm. and he's gonna say something stupid 
and he's going to embarrass you, mm-hmm. you're not, you don't want to bring her for a first date because mm-hmm. that's going to kill it. Mm-hmm. But, but maybe over time she can know me, know some of my other family members and develop such a bond that she's able to tolerate that weird <laughs> uncle. Right. And in that moment, I am the beautiful thing, mm. the attractive thing, mm. and not Christ. Right. And there is nothing, mm. there is nothing more false than that. Yeah. I am definitely not beautiful and attractive mm-hmm. on any measure. <laughs> and it's okay. I said it so you didn't have to. <laughs> Christ is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And so there was... Becoming hyper community focused mm-hmm. ended up bringing this whole the community wins, the community keeps. Mm-hmm. We'll get around to Jesus later, right? And that's that is the greatest criticism of the movement is that they never one that they believe they have to get around to Jesus mm-hmm. because they personally have more to offer from the get go. Mm-hmm. And two, that most of them never did really genuinely get around to Jesus, mm. or many of them. Right. I'm not going to quantify yeah. it in such a way as to say I can statistically prove that 51% or more didn't. Right. But many, many didn't. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the commercialization of the church, right? There's, there's a book I read called The Divine Commodity. Mm-hmm which is just a great title for a book. Um, but the divine commodity and, and the idea that, you know, churches forming themselves um, around what does the consumer want, right? Just like a company would, right? Right? Like Apple spending huge amounts of money to figure out how they need to sell people iPhones. Yep. Right? And, and, and they're going to package it However, you know, in, in whatever packaging is going to be most appealing, you know, they're going to market it in whatever way is going to be most appealing, right? And so when we begin going down that path as a church, um, then you have, yeah, the customer. The customer is always right, right, in business. Yes. The customer is yes. always right. And so if we apply the business principle of the customer is always right to the church, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Because the fallen world, I mean, we as redeemed Christians aren't right half the time the fallen world that doesn't know god that are enemies of christ they're not right jesus mm-hmm. is right 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 and so like there's just there's we, we need to be like careful right in, in how far we go and and um and so because yeah. ultimately don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with christ yeah right james tells us that mm-hmm. um sure. so no we don't let it become the driver yeah and community doesn't rule. Mm-hmm. Christ rules. Yeah. But at the same time, being unattractive and abrasive <laughs> is also not biblical practice of the no, church. Not, not right? necessary. And and that's where that's where this whole thing just needs it it, it needs sobriety. Mm-hmm. It needs uh, for us to be able to have some nuance mm-hmm. in the way that we talk. Mm-hmm. It it needs us to not presume outcomes as essentially so some basic things very basic things um would you ever put up a billboard advertising your church yes yeah i would i think it's a great idea yeah right i i think i think there are a number of people who might drive by Mm -hmm. and go maybe that's something i should do Mm. right Mm -hmm. uh or just to be better known sure right that's that's an advertisement. Yeah. Do we spend time making sure that our website is functional, up to date, and attractive? Yeah. Yeah, we do for sure. Yeah, we do that. Uh, special services. Mm. Right. Christmas. We'll advertise that. We'll yep. make sure people know. Yeah. Those kinds of things. Just events based on just accessing the community mm-hmm. and introducing ourselves to the community interacting with them right trunk or treat sure right that's its whole purpose its whole purpose is to say just want to say hi yeah the garage sale community garage sale community garage sale was one that we did Mm -hmm. uh moms and munchkins yeah is an incredible one we've seen Mm -hmm. so many people 
mm-hmm. find their way into the pew. Mm-hmm. All of them? No. Mm-hmm. But so many of them, yeah. right? Um, all of these things would be classified under the teachings of church growth movement. Um, and a hypercritic would look to them and say, I can't believe you're doing those things. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yet at the same time, I can't say that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we are not as a church hiding our belief in Christ. Mm-hmm. We don't hide the discussion of sin and repentance. Mm-hmm. I think it's the responsibility of a church, pastors and elders, to ask the question, how can we use the things that we've learned from this movement in a way that doesn't cause us to compromise? Yeah. And the person who wants to say using them at all is the compromise, I think is speaking out of turn. Because I think there are a lot of these things that have been going on always, mm. right? Sure. One of the ways that Jesus keeps people for conversation is to feed them, Yeah. right? It's true. We're going to serve these people lunch <laughs> so that I can talk to them more about the truth. Right, right. Right? Now, he doesn't end with that. Yeah, exactly. He jumps the boat, crosses over, the people follow him, mm-hmm. and they say, hey, how about another meal? Mm-hmm. And he's like, how about some truth? And they say... If you give us truth and not a meal, we're out of here. And he's like, well, that's on you. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he still serves them the meal. Yeah. He still, yeah. he still does healing. I yep. don't know that every person who was healed became a devout follower. Yeah. Yeah. Right? We don't, we don't have that statement. Um, so I, I, think there's, I think there's good and bad, and I, I think it's important for us to be able to discern. Mm. What elements of this are we using? Are we executing well? And where are we missing the mark, losing focus? Yeah. I mean, in regards to all this, I mean, I think it's Paul, right? Like, chew the meat, spit out the bones, mm-hmm. right? Like take what's good from this stuff mm-hmm. and and where it goes awry, then just let it be. But, you know, it's the ba- like, again, baby in bathwater, like just like how we started this conversation, right? And I think... There are some good practical things that we can we we have applied and can continue right. to do so, and there's you know and we also are kind of warned of where things can can go wrong if if the you know emphasis is on the wrong syllable. So, right. Just to go back to Rick Warren, since I've already sounded like an apologist for him, mm-hmm. um, I have Rick Warren stuff on my shelf. Me too. Mostly because. Everyone knows it. Yes. <laughs> and eventually someone's going to want to talk about it. Yeah. And I can prove that I know this stuff. I've read the books. Mm-hmm. They're there. I can reference them yeah. quickly if I need to in mm-hmm. order to have this conversation. Um, also, if Rick Warren wants to talk about the nature of the Trinity, mm. I probably have other places I'm going to pursue that education. Oh, yeah. Um, if he wants to talk about better ways to raise up small group leaders, I'm kind of there for that conversation. Yeah, sure. Because he's done it really well. Yeah, for sure. And I, I want to know, like, if he's got, if he's like, here's 10 minutes on how we more effectively communicate to volunteers, the needs that we have at the church, Mm -hmm. I want to hear him. Sure. Because I think he's got something to offer there. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I, I firmly believe a brother in Christ that we'll spend eternity with. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, I have no um, doubts about that. A human brother in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, one of us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, part two next week. I guess so, technically, yeah. Yeah, ki- kind of a part two. Yeah. And also the great reaction. Sure. <laughs> the great reaction of our modern day that That's right. we might still be a part of. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada. It's produced by Alex Walker. See you next time. Bye.